Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here on this end of February uh, day. I want to start off our our message today with a little story. Um, Since it's really chilly today, I want to tell you a story about down in Texas. Okay, Uh, In Texas, there was a DEA officer, uh, and he was stopped at a ranch in Texas, and he knocked on the door. And he spoke with this old man who had been living on this ranch for seemingly generations. And he told the rancher, he said, listen, there's been a lot of farms and ranches nearby that are growing illegal drugs. And I'm doing spot checks on all these uh, kind of properties. And uh, I need to inspect your ranch for the presence of any illegal drugs. And the rancher said, okay, but don't go in that field over there. And he pointed out in this direction And the DEA officer just lit up. He was so upset that he would even dare think to tell him what to do. He said, Mr. I have the authority of the federal government with me. And he reaches into his pants pocket and he pulls out his badge and he shoves it in this guy's face. And he says, you see this badge? This badge means I am allowed to go wherever I wish, whenever I want to on your property, on any land, no questions asked, no answers given. This gives me the authority to do that if I want to. Have I made myself clear, sir? Do you understand? So the rancher, of course, taken back a little bit and he just nods politely. He apologizes and he says, do what you need to do. And he kind of goes off to work his chores. So the DEA agent kind of moves off onto the property. He's checking different things. And a short time later, the old rancher hears the agent screaming at the top of his lungs. And he sees the agent uh, running for his life, being chased by the rancher's giant bull, right? And with every step, the bull was gaining uh, ground on this officer. And it seemed surely that this bull was about to run this officer through with his horns before he reached safety. The officer is terrified. The rancher throws down his tools, runs over to the fence, and he yells at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Show him your badge! (laughs) Maybe he'll stop with all of the authority vested in you, right? Authority, power, influence. Often this whole idea of power and authority and influence seems to be at the center of so many conflicts in our life. Because it makes us ask questions like, who gets to decide? Who gets to tell me what to do? What if I don't want to do what I'm told to do? Why can't I do whatever I want? Honestly, it's something that we wrestle with every single day and we likely don't even pay attention to that conflict. And I think as we will see later in our message today, that the more we wrestle with power, honestly, the more we wrestle with God in interesting ways that we might not be aware of. And so last week we began this whole new series uh, in the season of Lent. And again, as our worship team sort of preached the gospel to us in this season of Lent, Lent is this space in the church calendar. It's this space for 40 days between Ash Wednesday uh, and Resurrection Sunday, excluding the four Sundays. It's 40 days, and it's traditionally a, a, a season of introspection, of preparation. It's a season uh, where many of us practice letting go 
of something or some things. And today we want to talk about what does it mean for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to let go of power in our lives. And in this part of the series, we've, we've started off with Jesus Christ and his story in the desert. We followed him into the Judean wilderness and he spends 40 days in the desert fasting. And as we mentioned last week, this moment in Jesus' life uh, and this time he spends fasting and in the desert is all about who he is. It's all about his identity. In fact, I want to show you what happens in, in the book of Matthew just before Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. And this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And that one sentence is clearly a foundation for Jesus Christ's identity. First, he is God's son, meaning that his inheritance is secure, his status in God's family is permanent no matter what. Second, he is loved by his father. He is loved by God, meaning that God is committed to the very best for him. And then third and finally, God is pleased with him. God is happy with him. Jesus, in fact, this is before he does his ministry, any of his public ministry, before Jesus uh, does any of that, he doesn't have to do anything to make God happy. That God's pleasure, his love is not defined at all by what comes next in Jesus's life. So this moment in, in chapter three of Matthew, this moment of, of Christ's baptism is all about his identity, who he is. But he was Jesus, right? Didn't he always know who he was? But sure, Jesus was also 100% a human being, which means if being reminded about who he was and his identity was important to him, it's also important to us. It's also important to you and I. Because we have some of those same core questions in our lives. Who am I? Where do I belong? What do I have to do to be loved? Those are questions that we come back to again and again and again, especially as Jesus is about to experience in these desert-like experiences, when these times in our lives are, are difficult for us, these questions rise even more. So I just want to remind us how God talks to the Israelites during their 40 years in the desert experience. Uh, after they have, they're out in, of that experience in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8, God says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors have, had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so again, remember that God's people, these Israelites, for 430 years, they only knew themselves as slaves. They only knew God as distant they did not know how to be God's people any more than they knew how to like run their own society. And the 40 years in the desert that they experienced was not simply punishment. It was training 
It was shaping. It was discipleship. Anytime you are in a desert experience, it is an opportunity for shaping and discipleship for you too. And it took that long for that nation of Israel to realize their identity, that we are God's people, that he loves us and we can trust him to take care of us even in the desert. That was their identity. And that's not just true for Israel. It's true. It's about to be true for Jesus as well. Uh, and, And as Moses was in the desert for 40 years, Jesus walks into the desert for 40 days. And last week we started talking about these temptations that the devil shows up after 40 days when he's been out there for for a long time and he starts giving him these temptations. And today we get to the second temptation that he offers Jesus. And uh, this is what's written in Matthew chapter four. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, we didn't really talk about this previously in the first temptation, but I just want you to notice how the devil starts in on this conflict with Jesus. I don't know if you noticed it, The very first thing he says to him, if you are the son of God, straight straight into that, that core of Christ's identity. If you really are God's son, are you? Does God really love you? Don't you think you'd have to like do something to prove that to him? Have you ever wondered if you like truly are all those things that maybe you, you, maybe you got it wrong, right? In this first temptation, the devil was, 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 was tempting Jesus to be self-reliant. In this temptation, he's inviting Jesus to uh, unmoor his identity from what God says about him. He's inviting Jesus to do something that would make him the center of his own identity, the center of attention. He's actually tempting Christ to be spectacular. In fact, I've got a picture of kind of a model of what the temple might look like. And you can see it's a huge thing, right? And in Jesus' day, you had all these different pieces of it. And you can see kind of the pinnacle of the temple, the corner, And so the the devil takes Jesus to this temple in Jerusalem. He takes them out of the desert and into this busy, bustling center of their faith community temple. Where standing on the pinnacle would be the utmost public platform in the most populous city in their nation. And it's as if the devil is saying to Christ... Listen, man, all the eyes are on you, Jesus. They can all see you. If you are really who God says you are, then of course God would not hesitate to rescue you if you jumped. The Bible even says he's going to do that. His angels are come. What an amazing, spectacular moment this would be. If you did this, in fact, everybody would see this. You would be the center of attention. Everybody would know who you are. 
What could that do for your ministry, Jesus? Wouldn't everybody want to respond to who you are and follow what you say if you stood up and did this in front of them? Let's do a little thought exercise for a moment. This might be difficult for you, but I would just like for you to imagine a scenario where you are not in charge, right? Imagine a scenario where somebody else is in charge of you, right? It might be a boss at work. It might be a teacher at school. It might be a parent. It might be a government official or a manager at the restaurant you're eating at or the pastor of your church, right? Again, this might be difficult for you, but could you imagine what it might feel like for you to just think in your wildest dreams, the idea that, well, that's not what I would do if I was in charge. I know it might be difficult for you to ever think that, right? That's not what I would do. I would do this so much better if I was in that position. If this were my decision, I would make a different one. Anybody ever? No, just me, I guess, all the time. Everywhere I go, it's background. Of course, you would never think about, oh, I would do it better if I had the power that they had. But we do. We do it all the time. And this is the devil kind of saying to Jesus, listen, if you were the center of attention, if everybody saw you do this, you would be so valued, you would be so respected that you could do whatever you wanted. You would have all the power. You would be the most popular leader this faith community had ever seen. And you could do it the way you wanted. And I think he knows. I think the devil knows the reason Jesus is here is to correct something that isn't going well in our world. That Jesus is here on a mission. And he says, look, if you were the most important person here, you could achieve your mission pretty easily. It makes sense. In fact, there's a great, great uh, 21st century poet who reflects on it this way. Her name is Taylor Swift. She says, I thought about jumping off of a very tall something to see if you'd come running and say the one thing I've been wanting. Taylor's version, okay? Okay. Because you have this temptation too. What if I could make myself spectacular? What if I can make myself the center of attention and make everybody else respond to me, to attend to me, to give attention to me? If I could just climb up on a tall something and jump off, maybe I would get your attention and you would do the things I wanted you to do. Taylor gets it. Is Siri looking for the next Taylor Swift album? She just announced a new one. That was really funny. I think the temptation to be an influencer, to be relevant, was so true in Jesus' day as much as it was in ours. And this temptation was so relevant in his day because many, many powerful people did this every day. They faced the same temptation that Jesus did to influence other people, to exert power over them. In fact, Jesus talks about about it this way uh, in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Now, Moses' seat, let me give you a little uh, 
furniture lesson of the first century synagogue, the communal worship spaces that they had. Uh, In the Galilee, this area where the Pharisees were and Jesus was largely doing his ministry, synagogues were really common. They They were in every little community. And every synagogue was set up kind of the same. They had a, 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 what they called a Torah closet where the scrolls would be kept uh, from the Torah. Uh, and they had what they would call chief seats, these benches around the edge that the elders in the community would sit on. And uh, they had what was called a bema, which is a platform uh, in, in the middle uh, where the reader for the day uh, could take the scrolls out of the Torah closet, come to the bema, and everybody would listen to the words of God. And that person... Whoever's job it was to do that had their own special seat right next to the door. It's a little elevated chair called the Moses seat. And so Jesus tells the people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they sit in that seat. So you should listen to them because what they are teaching when they get out of that chair is the words of God. So you should listen to them. They read the scriptures for you. They, they teach from their words. They're educated. They're smart. Uh, they teach wisely from the scriptures. And when they're reading and when they're teaching, go ahead and listen to them. And then he takes a left turn in verse three. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So just... So, you know, phylacteries is a funny word. Uh, it's, it's a small leather case, like a pouch, that contains uh, pieces of scripture written down on parchment that the people would uh, put on their wrists and they'd have these leather bands that they'd wrap around or they'd tie them around their foreheads. Uh, and they often had tassels on their robes uh, that you would notice as they walked. Um, all of these came from an interpretation of God's commands Um, that they were to write the words of God on their foreheads and on their arms, and they were to keep their tassels long. But what they were, each of these things, were a visible sign of their religion, of their faith. A visible sign so people around you could observe your righteousness. So Jesus says, listen to them when they preach, but be careful that you don't act like them. Because they love to make your faith harder on you, not easier on you. They love to look the part, but not play the part. They love to draw attention to themselves in order to make you think they are worth following. That's a power move. They are are interested in drawing the, hey, look at me, do what I tell you. They love to have power and influence over others. The Pharisees, I think, were probably the very first cultural influencers. They would be on TikTok today. They were using their righteousness to elevate their position among the people. Everything they did was meant to be seen. They wanted recognition and influence that comes with being righteous. And so Jesus rightly points out that this is no longer about God for them. This is about themselves. 
about themselves being the center of attention. If they were in the desert instead of Jesus in that moment, I 100% believe that they would jump at the opportunity the devil is giving them to make a scene at the temple. They wouldn't even think twice. So let's ask the same question. If I were in that position, would I jump off the temple too? Would I seek to make uh, a scene? It's easy for us to think, well, if I had the power, if I had the influence, I would do it differently. So do we want that power? Do we want that influence? What would I do to get it? What is it in us that causes us to seek that kind of influence? What is that? What is inside of us that thinks I can do it better, do it the way I want? This is the gift of the Lenten season. It stops us long enough to ask these questions of ourselves and of our hearts. Now, Jesus responds to the devil in this moment when he offers him this opportunity to say, like, everybody will follow you, man. Jesus responds with a quote from scripture. He says, it's written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus kind of does this all the time uh, when he's speaking to people, especially when he's speaking to people who know the scriptures. He will say one uh, line or phrase out of the Old Testament. And what he's doing in that moment is implying everything else that's around it. Because good uh, Hebrews who know their Torah would know all, all the scripture around it. So Jesus pulls this one phrase. I want to give you the context. And there's a lot. I'll stop a couple of times, but I just want to give you what's going on around Jesus's response that he's likely implying here. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God says, listen, after all that time in the desert, I think you've got your identity figured out. You're learning about who you are and who I am and how to rely on me. But when we get there, when we get to the promised land, it's going to be really easy for you to forget. It's going to be really easy for you to forget who is actually in charge of everything. You're going to assume that the good things you have in life came from your ability and not God's grace. And you're going to be tempted to forget what you learned in the desert because things are going to go well for you. And then he continues in verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. And then we get Jesus' quote. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all of your enemies before you, as the Lord said. God's saying, once you think you know best, 
you're going to be tempted to stop following God altogether. You're going to be tempted when things are going well to think you know best that your ideas about what's right and good in your own eyes is what's going to make sense. And that's going to lead you away from me. That's going to lead you to other gods. It's going to lead you to problems. Don't do that. Don't, don't test me with that move away from me. Stay right here with me. Remember who I am and remember who you are. And then there's one more paragraph, verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So once again, he reminds them about the desert. So remember the desert. I was a slave in Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt and I didn't get myself out. God did. I had no power to do that myself. Remember, we were powerless when we were there. And be careful to practice all of these laws. Deuteronomy's got all the rules, all the laws. Remember to be careful to practice them, he says. Because these things that you practice are ways in which you submit to him. And see, God's solution to the temptation of power is always submission. It's always humility. And that's why Lent is about who we are. We get to practice humility. We get to practice submission. Last week, we talked about what happens when you strip away all of the things that you think we need. When we let go of necessity, we find out God is the only one who provides. And now when we get to strip away our desire to influence, to control, when we let go of power, we realize that he is God and we are not. Uh, I brought up author Henry Nouwen last week, and uh, he has this to say about the idea of power. And I love this quote out of his book, In the Name of Jesus. He says, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than love life. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus encounters the same temptations that you and I do all the time and situations of power and control. And his response was not simply to recite Bible verses. No, it was to make different choices. It was to intentionally choose to love people instead of control them. It was to intentionally choose humility instead of power. There are many, many ways in which God could have accomplished his mission on earth. And in this season, it always strikes me. I'm so glad we sang that song about Good Friday. It strikes me that of all the ways God could have accomplished his mission, he chose to have his son climb up on a cross 
and be executed. That's humility. That is submission. And again, as we're in this series, I can talk about this all I want. I can describe it all I want, but the best way for us to understand it is to practice it. Right? The Christian faith is not simply an intellectual exercise. It is a lived experience. And during Lent, we want to focus on living these experiences of letting go. So Jesus says, or God says, remember the desert, remember the desert. And when we remember the desert, we remember being powerless. Deuteronomy 8, remember how the Lord your God led you. You didn't lead him. You didn't lead yourselves. The Lord your God led you in the wilderness for 40 years to humble you. Truly the only way to combat our temptation for power and influence is to practice letting go of it. And so for those of you who want to practice this daily, we've been handing out this bookmark we started last week. uh, And there's uh, a a lot of of different like suggestions, ways you can practice this uh, every every single day. And so if you want to practice humility, actually, let's, let's skip to that screen and throw that up there right now, Tracy. Just the, the day one, day two, just different things for you to practice. You can uh, uh, read Deuteronomy 6 and be reminded of who God is and who you are. I just want to point out day three. There's a lot of different ways you can practice this. These are suggestions of ways to practice humility. Uh, but day three says, let someone else make a decision that impacts you. Uh, and in one of our campuses, in our Walker campus, uh, they had an Ash Wednesday service and they started in on this journey, this 40 day journey. And um, when she was kind of, this woman was looking through this list and, and looked at that one. Let someone else make a decision that impacts you. And she decided she was going to go to her friend and say, uh, I want you to pick for me what I should give up in Lent. Um, which seems simple, but when you think about that, You said, I'm going to ask somebody in my life to look at my uh, heart, what they see in me, and tell me what I need to get rid of. Scott, I'm noticing this. I think you should practice letting go of that. Uh, I'm your friend. I care about you. Uh, I think I see this thing. You actually might not see it. Now, that's, that's a humble person who wants to say that. So think on day three. But there are a lot of ways in which we can practice this. In fact, Jesus himself offers us a practice of humility that is intended, I believe, to draw out selfish, entitled, power-wielding ways that we tend to have. And it's the reciting of what's known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And this is how Jesus tells us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we pray this prayer and when we practice humility, we are reminded it is not about bringing glory and recognition to our name, but to hallow and bring recognition and attention to the reputation of God. And so every time we wrestle with the thoughts of, I think I can do that better. I would make that decision differently. I just want to be in charge. I just want to be in control. I would like to tell that person what to do. We are wrestling with the nature of God. We are wrestling with where do I want to bring the attention? 
And will I choose to bring it to the reputation of the Lord? The Bible is not a book that's about giving us our best life, though I think it guides us in that way. The point of the Bible is not to bring our kingdom, but to align our lives with the Father and bring his kingdom. So Jesus tells us that's how you should pray every day. That's a practice you should practice every day. Hallowed be your name. And so as we wrestle with with power, Uh, My hope is that as a church, we may practice the art of letting go, that we may not simply pray, but we may live your kingdom come, your will be done instead of our own. Let's pray together today. Lord God, I'm grateful today that um, you are God and I am not. And I recognize and I confess that most of my life is spent Uh, trying to influence things the way I'd like them to be. So God, today we, we, we pray this prayer. We, we, we pray that your name and your reputation may be great and that ours would not. God, empower us and help us to live with humility, to practice submission, to allow other people to make decisions for us so that when we encounter you, We are practiced in letting you lead. May we remember the desert. May we remember when we were powerless so we can be reminded that you, Lord, our God, are the king of the universe. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.